Annenberg Media. This is the Annenberg Learner Podcast, where we aim to elevate the education profession through conversations that inspire, recognize, and encourage innovation and best practices in the field. We track the lived experience of teachers, students, and parents alongside the ecosystem that serves them. Guest speakers will share what's working and the steps we can take to reimagine and redesign teaching and learning for our most vulnerable populations. Uh, welcome to the Annenberg Learner Podcast. With me today is Bruce Fuller. He is a professor of education and public policy at the University of California, Berkeley. He recently released When Schools Work, a book that looks at why student achievement climbed in Los Angeles between 2000 and 2019, and how a variety of civic activists initiated reforms across the city. I'm really excited to welcome him. I'm not being an Angelino myself, I really appreciated learning about the history of Los Angeles and LAUSD in particular, and how the district became what it is today. Welcome, Bruce. Thank you, Nati, for having me. All right, so let's jump in. Uh, first, I'd like to just pick your brain around what's happening now and uh, what is preventing us from creating a public education system that works for all students. Well, a lot of my team's work uh, really over the last 15 years has been in LA, Nati, so I'll, I'll respond through that local lens. In Los Angeles, there have been two or three big barriers to improvement, although we'll get to the mystery that, that motivated my book, which is why achievement went up in LA for so many years. One is the Mao distribution of funding for schools in Los Angeles. Uh, like other big metro areas, you have a pretty significant middle class and even upper middle class in parts of, of L.A., uh, on the west side, up northwest uh, L.A., and then you have pockets of, of very severe poverty. And civic activists and pro-equity groups now for 25 years have pushed to more progressively fund schools, and they've had some real success in, in that regard. And I think the other big issue, which I really learned about from these same activists in Los Angeles, is that it, for a long time, you had racially organized expectations in, in the heads and hearts of teachers. You had teachers who really felt that only certain kids had the ability or the capacity to go to college. And you had pretty sharp tracking in LA, LA elementary schools, high schools. And again, over the last quarter century, there's pretty good evidence that those teacher expectations have changed. The teaching force is beginning to look more like the demographics of the kids being served, and that has a very positive effect on raising expectations. So it's sort of in the, in the guts of the beast, these expectations are, are super important to enrich and, and equalize, and then equalizing school funding is another big, another big remedy uh, for which there's been great progress. Touching on the funding piece, right now, districts are inundated with more funds than they've ever had. And I'm just wondering, how is LUSD or California districts, how are they making sure that there is an equal distribution of funding? Are they using existing models or creating new ones because of the influx of funding? Can you speak to that? Yeah, that's a great question, Nati. I mean, LA Unified as one big district, the nation's second largest district, has about a 40% bump in its annual budget from federal stimulus dollars. California Governor Newsom has provided additional funding. There's a lot of cash slushing around in the system, but a lot of that will go away in 2024 when the federal stimulus dollars uh, expire. So a lot of districts are in this very 
awkward situation of where they have a lot of funding now, but tomorrow they're not going to have a lot of new funding. And so we see interventions like tutoring. Uh, tutoring has received a lot of attention in recent months. Districts can quickly hire private firms to provide supplemental tutoring for kids. There's some evidence that tutoring does pay off if it's done by high quality teachers and tutors, but that's a temporary fix. That's a band-aid. That's not looking at the long-term quality of the core teaching force. It's not looking at can we sustain some of the innovations that popped up during COVID? It's not looking at can we lower class size over time? So we're in this very strange era that's going to go for another couple of years now where there's a lot of money, but that funding may not actually be targeted on building more innovative and engaging uh, schools. Got it. Thank you. Just shifting gears back to the book, can you describe who the new pluralists were as you described them in the book and also what new coalitions and tactics you're observing now post not post but during the pandemic yep yep so my research team with colleagues at other universities and my students began to uh, hang out in LA for months at a time and this began about in 2007 I was actually, I grew up outside of Pasadena. I'm, I'm, I am an Angelino by birth. And so I was happy to get back to my hometown. And what motivated our inquiry was really, we began to discover that test scores kept inching up and up and up in Los Angeles from 2002 forward. And, you know, in a town that had become increasingly working class, increasingly populated by families who were struggling to make ends meet. But despite that sort of challenge, test scores were going up. And, and after about 18 or 19 years, until the eve of the pandemic, on average, kids were now about one grade level higher mm. than they were in 2001, 2002. And that was a very tantalizing mystery for an academic researcher. Like, why in the heck did sure. you see <laughs> such, such progress in a district that oftentimes looks pretty chaotic? To your question, what we discovered was this complicated group, which we call the new pluralists in, in the book. The book is called When Schools Work. It's trying to explain that mystery. And one answer to this is that in the late 1990s, you had a new politics of education emerging in LA. And without droning on about this, it was basically a third sector, a third group of activists that were not aligned to the old kind of mainly white corporate moderates in downtown LA who pulled a lot of strings oftentimes to fund or to limit funding for LA schools. Mm -hmm. And these third sector groups were not aligned with organized labor. In fact, some of the Latino groups had no history in organized labor because labor unions in LA had had not accepted Latino members really until the late 1950s. So this was a third sector of activists from the political left and what we consider the political right. That is part of the new pluralists were advocates for charter schools, which were being funded by right of center groups like the Walton family. Uh, Reed Hastings, the founder of Netflix, who was a left of center Democrat, but he's very hot on charter schools. You had a set of new pluralists that introduced charter schools. And then on the left, you had pro-equity advocates like the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, the Advancement Project, a group started by um, left of center attorneys in Los Angeles. 
uh, inner city struggle started by Maria Brennis, who's now a school board candidate in LA. Karen Bass, who started the Community Coalition in South LA, who's now running for mayor of LA. You had this new generation of activists and they weren't satisfied with the corporate remedies nor the labor remedies for schools. And that generated a whole bunch of school reforms that we might wanna talk about. But the point is these new pluralists, this more pluralistic politics in LA generated a fresh set of energy that has really lasted through the pandemic over the last quarter century. And these folks now are rising up into positions of power after challenging the status quo. And that was kind of the, the driving spark behind uh, these reforms that did result in, in almost 20 years of growth in, in student achievement. Got it. Can you speak to what that might look like going forward? I mean, I can imagine just there being a lot of uh, discontent around parents and families where there, there's been a, a lot of issues that they've faced, including unfinished learning, unclear communication from schools about returning or not returning. And where do you see this heading now in terms of the, of the groups that are working for or against or within the district to make change? Well, I think going back to these immediate band-aids like, like tutoring, I think the pro-equity wing of the new pluralists will they are pushing to make sure that these new um, interventions, these new support systems are focused on schools that are most challenged by poverty. And the theory of action here is quite simple. It's a little bit like healthcare. We don't equally distribute public support for healthcare because healthy people don't cost as much as people that suffer from illness or disease. So like healthcare, these groups are saying to move kids in poor communities over the proficiency bar to, to help them reach proficiency in reading, math, social studies, those communities do need extra support. And it's this progressive form of school finance that's being pushed on. You know, the report out two weeks ago from LA Unified on the tutoring showed that tutoring is only reaching about one sixth of all the kids in the district. And that's the kind of thing that upsets these equity groups because it's like we have LA Unified has an extra three billion, three and a half billion dollars per year now, and they're not getting the tutoring support to the kids who would most benefit. So I think in the short run, post COVID, there's going to be this ongoing press to distribute resources uh, more equally, and at the same time to try to make sure that that we're upgrading the teaching force across all schools, rich and poor. Uh, Superintendent Carvalho has talked about renovating school facilities to make sure that all kids rich and poor go to first-class facilities. So I think this is going to be a universal strategy with some strong focus on progressive finance to make sure that the kids that were hit hardest by learning loss get the most supplemental aid. So some of the themes originating with the new pluralists back in the late 1990s, those themes and those policy priorities, I think, are are maturing and, and growing even stronger uh, post-pandemic. You can subscribe to the Annenberg Learner podcast on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This reminds me of something that I read in your book about the equity index. Is that related to how funding was pushed to, to the schools that were most in need, or the communities most in need? And what is that exactly? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great example, Nati. So going back about 10 years ago, United Way of Greater Los Angeles led a coalition called the Class Coalition. And some of our students did analytic work for the coalition 
which showed that as new funding was coming into LA, I mean, former Governor Brown increased funding dramatically from 2013 forward. And as that new money came in, this coalition was trying to push to make sure that the most challenged schools receive their fair share. And the way to distribute money was organized around a new equity formula. And this has become known as the CENI index, the Student Equity Needs Index, S-E-N-I. And the Advancement Project in Los Angeles, the Community Coalition under Karen Bass's leadership, these are the core groups that have put in place this allocation formula, which will regularize a more progressive way to finance schools. As new funding comes into LA Unified from the state capital, rather than spreading that funding evenly, the CENI index makes sure that, that the most highly challenged schools, oftentimes in the poorest parts of South LA, East LA, that those ch heavily challenged schools receive some extra support, just like we do in healthcare finance, to make sure that those kids can reach the state proficiency bar. So the CENI index is a really pivotal case of how the new pluralists have worked at this for 12, 14 years now. They didn't just settle for a rhetorical resolution passed by the school board. They've really dug in and implemented this index. And it, it now moves about a, a billion and a half dollars of, this, of the district budget each year progressively. As part of its mission to advance excellent teaching in American schools, Annenberg Learner funds and distributes educational video programs with coordinated online and print materials for the professional development of K-12 teachers. Many programs are also intended for students in the classroom and viewers at home with videos that exemplify excellent teaching. K-12 educators, students, and lifelong learners may access Annenberg Learner resources for free at learner.org. Please note, rights restrictions may limit the availability of some series. For the latest information about learner programming and availability, sign up for the Annenberg Learner Newsletter at learner.org. There was an interesting map in your book about, about the degree of competition between charter, pilot, private as it relates to traditional district schools. And it showed that if there was a school within a two-mile radius, um, and this was captured in 2016, that um, the schools actually decreased in, in achievement. Can you talk a little bit about that? And what might that map look like today, given all the numbers of students that have left the district? So to back up one step, part of the new pluralist agenda was to move towards what we call in the book organizational pluralism. That is a, letting a thousand flowers blossom, creating a more diverse set of, of schools in the district. And again, the new pluralists made, made huge progress on this agenda. On the right, there were the charter advocates, which has proven very controversial, but charter schools now enroll a fifth of all the kids in LA Unified. Maybe more in the center politically and left of center, uh, you had the growth of so-called pilot schools. Pilot schools are like charters, but teachers remain in the union. Teachers remain in the pension and benefit plan system for the district. Mm -hmm. uh, there's now 51 pilot schools. Many of these are small high schools in Boyle Heights, the Esteban Torres complex. There's five small pilot high schools, human scale high schools. You have dual language immersion programs. The district has about 70,000 youngsters in magnet schools that you know, move from a focus on theater arts to pre-nursing studies to STEM and math science. So you had all these flowers blossoming and an enormous amount of diversity. Parents were no longer tied to attendance zones. So you have a very liberal parental, parental choice system in LA Unified. And kids are traveling cross town, 
outside their neighborhoods to this wild kaleidoscope of different kinds of schools. But this proved to be a double-edged sword. This comes to the map. So now if you, if you put a pin on a map in any regular public school in LA Unified, there may be five, six, seven alternative schools within a two-mile radius. This competition unfolds, which on the positive side is, has proven very popular among parents, because now parents feel they can search out the best school that fits their child's interests, attributes, personality. So it's, it's kind of the, it's the positive side of competition. On the other hand, to your, to your question, we also found that regular public schools that face the most competitive pressure tend to lose their most effective teachers. Mm. So if you put one of these pins in a map in, in East LA, if that school is, is surrounded by 12 alternative schools rather than two alternatives, that first school is going to lose more of its most effective teachers. So by effective, we mean teachers that boost kids' learning curves most, most steeply over, over a year or a school year. So that proved to be the negative side of competition, that these alternative schools, for whatever reason, they might provide more small working environments. They might be more social justice oriented. They might be more specialized. But the most effective teachers in regular schools tend to migrate out to the alternative schools. And that's the downside of competition. I'm curious, and maybe that this isn't part of your research, but what could those schools do? And assuming that that's the lever that needs to be adjusted, how do they make it competitive among teachers so that they stay at their prospective campuses? Yeah, that's a great question, Nati, <laughs> and one that I hope Superintendent Carvalho addresses. I think charter school advocates or proponents of dual language immersion, I think they would say that they're creating more innovative models, which should be mimicked by regular public schools, right? They're saying that we're just not like Burger King, we're ramping up hamburgers or we're providing a more quality product. And that sort of pressure should lead to innovation in those regular public schools. That's a hopeful argument. And, and ideally that plays out. The problem though, is that regular public school in that community may not have the capacity to innovate, or it may have an aging teaching staff, or it may have a deadhead school principal. You know, this is the problem with market arguments is that there is a, there is a spark, markets create sparks of innovation, but they also drag down organizations that don't have much capacity to innovate. The other thing we found, which is troubling, which we think the district should be monitoring more closely, is that some of these schools like charters are more effective in boosting kids' achievement but they're also recruiting kids from better educated households. They're accepting kids who are already achieving at higher levels in the first, second grade. The new forms of schooling are exciting. They're proving to be popular, but they're also leading to new forms of stratification among kids. Even in a, in a, even in a town that's heavily working class and lower middle class, this is not stratifying wealthy uh, Westwood kids from poor Boyle Heights kids. This is a new form of stratification just among middle to, to lower income families. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. That sort of leads me to my next question about the segregation around schools. So I think historically when, when it's talked about, we've in terms of um, uh, like separate but equal doctrine, but what, what does that look like now? And what are some of the either policies or activism around trying to integrate schools? There's still severe racial segregation mm, in, okay. in LA. The, the other complication in Southern California, or if you think about LA County, which is a you know, bigger geographical unit than the school district, you know, we have districts like Santa Monica on the West side, which is much 
which is much wider than LA Unified. Glendale Unified, which borders on LA Unified. You know, Glendale is super interesting. It's Latino, white, and Armenian. <laughs> so, you know, just the diversity of the county is, is really unbelievable and quite remarkable. So what's, what's happened in the last quarter century in LA Unified is that with upward mobility, especially among young Latino families uh, and young Black families, they tend to move out of LA Unified, not far from LA downtown, but into neighboring districts like Glendale, Burbank, Culver City is a much more integrated district. Culver City is an island inside LA Unified for listeners who aren't familiar with, with LA. The good news is we, we've had upward mobility, especially since the 2008 recession. And that's led to a lot of migration of middle-class Latinos and Blacks and even Asian heritage families out of the district into neighboring districts where they think they're finding higher quality schools or safer neighborhoods. But that leaves behind a much more segregated population within LA Unified. And then as I mentioned before, within LA Unified, with a diverse range of schools, the parents who have time or wherewithal or chutzpah to shop around schools and to drive you know, in LA traffic to find different schools, those kids tend to sort into stronger schools and alternative schools, and that leaves behind kids who maybe in foster care homes or whose parents work graveyard and swing shifts who don't have time to shop this market. So the marketization of the LA school system is leading to these new forms of stratification. So I read about San Antonio where they're trying to integrate students from different zip codes and they actually allocate a certain amount of seats for, for students so that it is a more diverse population. And in San Antonio, it's not it's not racially diverse, but it's income diversity. It, are, is there anything like that in LA County? It's a great point. And there is talk of this inside the district. Uh, Kelly Gomez, who's a school board member now from the San Fernando Valley, she formed a, a commission to look at whether there could be greater integration across social class lines. Uh, and I know the, the policy and strategy office under Superintendent Carvalho is looking into this. Oh. Um, whether the board will take action remains to be seen, but at least there's some serious thinking about this. And, and one center of the conversation is around magnet schools because mm -hmm. magnet programs in LA Unified have become really very popular. There's about three parent applications for every one seat that opens up each year long waiting lists for magnet programs. But there are many magnet programs that resegregate kids. So you might have the resegregation of Asian heritage kids in certain kinds of magnets, or black families are turned on by one magnet you know, in one part of the district. So there is real interest in trying to make sure that the magnet system is racially and, and, and integrated across, across social class lines. I'm curious, since we're talking about the magnet schools and also just the smaller school movement in general, did those fare better in terms of enrollment in the last three years? I'm thinking magnets, dual language, those mission-driven theme schools. We yeah. keep hearing about enrollment being significantly down across the district. I have not seen solid data on that out of LA Unified. We do know that attendance was lower. We did find that pilot schools at least over the last 10 years, pilot schools are more effective than regular public schools in LA in terms of reducing dropout rates at the high school level. 
-hmm. pilot schools have more holding power. Kids transfer out of pilots at a much lower rate. So it may be these smaller human scale high schools, uh, like in San Antonio, uh, Superintendent Carvalho did this very well in Miami before he came to LA. It could be these human scale, small schools have much greater holding power and kids feel more loyalty and feel more respect and acceptance in, in those school settings. Hopefully they'll be maintained and funded at a, at a higher level. Yes. Yeah. I mean, when we think about achievement and I mean, it starts with getting the students there. And I feel like we've, I mean, we've taken so many steps back during this pandemic. I think we're going back to like, let's just get them in the, in the classroom and learning again. Yeah, and make and and making them feel like they're they're members of a school community. They're they're not just out there in electronics land, yes. not not connected to their friends and to their teachers. The Wallace Annenberg Gen Space is an innovative center for older adults to pursue creativity, connection, and lifelong learning. For more information, visit genspace.la. There's a graph that kind of summarizes your, your findings in uh, when schools work about which policies benefited students the most between that period of the early 2000s to 2020. Can you talk a little bit about what, what the key takeaways were? We found a few things that worked really well. One was uh, some of these new diverse forms of schooling, like autonomous pilot schools, uh, as I mentioned, were lowering dropout rates, and that, that tends to increase achievement over time. We found that going back to Roy Romer's uh, superintendency starting in the year 2000, he really focused teachers on early literacy skills and uh, really tried to herd all teachers to get behind a shared set of, of basic proficiencies tied to early literacy, reading, reading comprehension, writing. This was not without controversy because he did buy a fairly regimented curriculum called Open Court. Uh, he sent in monitors to keep track of how teachers were, were teachers teaching to the curriculum with great fidelity and allegiance. So this sort of regulation was controversial, but that's when achievement first started to go up. And as those, as that cohort went into middle school with stronger literacy levels, ideally a greater love for reading, stronger math skills, that cohort then drove future achievement trends that kept climbing and climbing until right before the pandemic. So focusing on a, a fewer set of key proficiencies, I think, is, is something that really worked. We also found that investing in facilities made a big difference, especially in the South Cities, in East LA, places where kids were going to schools where the bathrooms were closed because the toilets didn't work, roofs were falling in, the place that had been painted in 30, 40 years. So sometimes facilities are sort of seen as a cosmetic fix, but we actually track kids as they went from old decrepit schools into newer renovated schools, and that raised achievement. We talked to one kid, I'll never forget, first year high school student in a brand new school said, I, I, I no longer am going to a ghetto school. I, I realize that the grownups actually care about. And it was just the vivid symbolism of being in a freshly painted school. And he, he realized that there was this civic investment in his future. So facilities investments also paid, paid off in, in spades. Based on those findings, if it were me, I'd go to the district and say, these two things created a huge improvement in achievement more than all these others that are, that are being explored. Would that be a fair argument to make? And I mean, I can see backlash on the first one, the curriculum. <laughs> 
Yeah. But yeah. The second one. <laughs> yeah, it would be wouldn't be that controversial. No, that, yeah. that's a good point. My colleague Pedro Nogueira and I did a op-ed a couple of weeks ago, kind of doing what you're suggesting, Navni. We 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 sort of read the book together and then distilled, you know, our best agenda for the new superintendent. Part of the problem, though, is conditions have changed. So, you know, LA Unified is going to have to be closing at least a few schools as enrollments decline. Ideally, we'd like to know of, of this kaleidoscope of diverse schools post-COVID, which schools are more effective or least effective. I think Superintendent Carvalho, he's kind of a data nerd, and I think he will try to look at the comparative efficacy of different kinds of schools. Um, so we'd want to know a little bit more before we move on, on that. Certainly, we know changing teacher expectations, as I mentioned up front, has been very effective. Maria Brennis at Inner City Struggle really pushed to ensure that every high school kid in LA can enter an advanced placement class. Every kid in LA can take a college prep class to qualify them for the University of California. So Maria Brennis, Karen Bass, these, act, these new pluralists from the 90s, they did concrete things to try to raise and enrich the expectations teachers have for their students. And, but we have a long way to go on that too. So there's certainly reforms discussed in the book that are kind of halfway implemented and we've, we just have to keep the momentum going. One of the understandings that I took away from the book was that LAUSD was a highly centralized district and it has slowly moved to, to very decentralized, giving a lot of power around budgeting and hiring to school site leaders. I'm curious, do you see that continuing to happen? Do you see it moving back a little? And how does uh, that help us or not address all of the many issues that are facing the district, including unfinished learning, families with food insecurity, illness, job loss, and then an attendant in the last three years? Yeah, it's, it's, that's a really pivotal issue. And uh, Superintendent Carvalho, I've heard him speak a couple of times and met with his staff. He's leaning towards centralization. So this is going to be interesting. Also, I would say that if you add up this kaleidoscope and this rainbow of, of alternative schools, charters, pilots, dual language immersion, magnets, it's still probably about a third of all the schools in LA. Two thirds of the schools really still operate as conventional, regular public schools under the centralized reign of the district. So the district is sort of one-third decentralized, two-thirds still pretty centralized. So that's going to be something to deal with. That's, that's a tough governance situation for the board and for the superintendent. The other, the other point here, Navneet, is that when the district hands out decentralized chunks of funding, so under the, the, under the SCNI, the CENI index we talked about earlier, that gives more discretionary funding to school principals, even in regular public schools. When that happens, principals always, they're not always the most strategic planners. So they might have, you know, they might say, well, we've got to reopen two bathrooms, or I have a Spanish teacher who has a bad bulletin board. I want to replace the bulletin board, or the English department needs new textbooks. That is, when you decentralize funding, it's not always a silver bullet because principals may be patching holes in the walls. They may not be actually rethinking the nature of schooling or creating more alternative internship programs or uh, getting rid of lousy teachers, right? Principals are political actors too in a, in a, on a small canvas, and they may just be engaged in incremental improvement. So decentralization is not always a silver bullet because 
that discretion may not lead to, to bold uh, improvements at the school level. I wonder if, is there a world in which you have both where the money is going to those local leaders, but something attached to it. So there is systems level change at, you know, at the local level. There have been a couple models. The Bill Clinton, Barack Obama model was that centrally we should set the learning objectives, right? So we have learning proficiencies set by uh, the state government or perhaps the school district. Those are set centrally. That is, what are we working towards? Everybody should look work towards the same learning objectives. But then you decentralize as to how schools get there. Um, that's one model, which is had some success in some communities, but the second model, which Carvalho really pioneered in Miami, he looked at student growth school by school. And if the school over three or four years kept showing student growth, he just decentralized management. He just said, we're not going to come and see you guys very often anymore. You're doing fine. So he kind of rewarded high performance. It also allowed him to not worry so much about upper middle class <laughs> families complaining all the time in Miami, he could focus his attention and resources on schools and communities that needed more capacity building and, and greater assistance. But that's a second model to reward schools that turn around and, and, and show growth over time. So there, there are different strategies, but I think one, one message from our book is that decentralization buys you variety in the types of schools and programs that are created but decentralization doesn't necessarily reduce inequality and narrow, narrow achievement gaps. It's a, it's a double-edged sword. Yes, I think I, I read that although student achievement went up, the gap persists. Exactly, persists. exactly. And this, this, is, this myths a lot of us in the academic world. I think activists are frustrated by this. We've seen this in other cities and uh, suburban school districts that if over 25 years you have concerted policy reforms, you can raise achievement levels. I mean, in Miami, where Carvalho's from, kids are at two grade levels above where LA kids are performing. So Carvalho went through the same experience where he could raise achievement levels on average, but reforms that actually narrow disparities, that's a harder nut to crack, been able to do that yet in LA. Do you, do you see that working or having been done elsewhere? Carvalho did it in certain schools in Miami, for sure. Um, he had very, very low-performing schools uh, serving quite low-income communities, and he did turn around a fair number of schools. We haven't seen that happen so much in Los Angeles, although pilot schools give us a little bit of hint as to how to do this. You know, the Esteban Torres complex in East LA, a lot of those kids used to go to Garfield High School, which was an overcrowded, dismal place to be in for a couple decades, but those kids are doing much better in pilot schools. So I think we have hints as to how to close achievement gaps, but we, we haven't yet done it very well on a system-wide basis. Best Buy is committed to building brighter futures for teens through tech. With an extensive network of Best Buy teen tech centers, teens are provided safe after-school spaces where they can get hands-on experience with the latest technology in areas like programming, filmmaking, music production, and design. Best Buy has set a goal to support 100 teen tech center locations by 2025, expanding the program's reach to 30,000 teens each year. To find a Best Buy teen tech center near you, visit corporate.bestbuy.com slash social dash impact slash teen dash tech dash centers. Do you see some innovative practices or practices that look promising that could be shared across the system in LA? What else is being done there that's unique? 
Well, pilots, I think it is small scale. These are schools with 400, 500 kids as opposed to 3,000, 4,000. So it is human scale. Pilot schools recruit teachers, just like magnets. Teachers are recruited who, who get behind the program. So there are pilots that are very social justice oriented. Kids are, do internships in the community. Kids mm -hmm. learn all about serving the community. Racial injustice and, and class inequality are topics that are dealt with head on. Talking about problems kids face in walking to school or walking by liquor stores. I mean, just the day-to-day challenges kids face are just put on the table and talked about. Yeah, we need to make sure kids know civics and know long division, but we also want to respect and engage the daily issues they face. That new relevance is super important. And then some of the new pluralists, the nonprofit groups like the Community Coalition, they, they form student clubs, if you will, that, that are organizing tutoring sessions. Kids come in for lunch sessions, the Community Coalition, COCO clubs, and, and they talk about community problems. They talk about how do we get our school painted? How do we try to set aside lousy teachers? How do we make sure that the discipline isn't criminalized and cops are on campus? So some of the new pluralists have really innovative ways of engaging kids and really nurturing their ability to take control of their lives and their communities. And we have a chapter in the book just on this very topic, following these cocoa school lunch hours. And it, it's a fascinating innovation because now kids feel control and feel like, hey, we're, we're being respected as agents of, of improving our neighborhoods. Yes, I remember reading about these organizations. They're applying pressure at the top, but they're also getting youth exposed to leadership and becoming change agents in their community so they can then do the work. If you look at Maria Brennan, school board candidate, Karen Bass, mayoral candidate, these are people who, when they were young, they went through these organizing sessions and they they became very connected and very respected members of their neighborhoods. So this is a way to rethink relevance and to, to really engage what kids are struggling with day to day and what, what they're mulling over, not, not just what, what the Sacramento set curriculum object, objectives look like. Bruce, is there anything else you would like to share with our learner audience about um, your research or your book, When Schools Work, or anything that's coming? The other big takeaway from the book, and um, I was at USC the other day and gave a book talk and a person in the audience came up afterwards and she made this great point that most of the characters that I trace in the book, no one's ever heard of. Even like LA political hacks may not have heard of Yoli Flores or Elmer Rodan or, or you know, these characters that, that I came to love in, in tracking them over 10 10, 12 years. And the, and the point is that these reforms that proved so effective came out of this cauldron of new thinking, new politics, new pluralism, but it, they were authored and crafted by, by a lot of individual actors that just had this commitment and faith that they can improve the schools. So, you know, it wasn't Barack Obama, it wasn't Jerry Brown, it was lesser known civic activists that made it all happen. And I think, I think that's a hopeful story. That's a that's an uplifting reality for how schools can improve over time, driven by the commitment of a lot of different people. Yes, I agree. That gives me hope. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. It was a fascinating read. I encourage anyone to, to pick this up, uh, whether you live in LA or not. Thank you so much, Bruce, for your time today. Thanks for your careful read of the book. It made for a, a good discussion.
The Annenberg Learner Podcast joins the catalog of multimedia professional learning content to support educators teaching in more effective ways. Annenberg Learner is the education division of the Annenberg Foundation. Learner supports the foundation's mission to encourage the development of more effective ways to share ideas and knowledge. Go to learner.org and annenberg.org to learn more.